Hi, listener. Hotel Bar Sessions podcast is on a break while Lee and Jason and I are hard at work preparing season seven. We have got a lot of interesting things planned and we're getting all of that in the works. But in the meantime, we're giving our listeners a few classic episodes from our archives. So enjoy this replay episode from season five, YouTube's right wing rabbit hole with our special guest, Caleb Kane. <laughs> to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Rick Lee, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Dr. Charles Peterson and Dr. Lee Johnson. And today we are talking about YouTube's right-wing rabbit hole. So Charles Noel wants to know what you're drinking, and I want to know, are you ranting or raving? I believe for my drink, I think Noel can help me out with this, I'd like a Vespa. Oh. I'm feeling a little James Bond cosplay in the Vespa, <laughs> which I did not know. The Vespa was the original Bond drink from the Ian Fleming novels. And today I will be raving about four-way soul food restaurant in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have lost your faith in anything, please go there and get some of that sweet potato pie with the homemade vanilla ice cream. And trust me, you will see the divine spark in all things. It's so good. God is my witness. I almost unbuckled my bed at the table, but I definitely started reciting scripture. <laughs> Around town here, we call that place the diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. But the four-way soul food restaurant in Memphis, please check it out if you ever get down to Memphis. All right. And Lee, what are you drinking and are you ranting or raving? I'm just going to have two fingers of Benchmark, which is... One of my favorites. It's an inexpensive bourbon, but I really love it. And I'm also going to have it with a water back because, come on, hydration, hydration, hydration. <laughs> Today, relatedly, I am also raving about whiskey balls. <laughs> you said balls. I do like to say whiskey balls. But you know those ice cube balls that you get in whiskey? We bought some of those and we keep them in our freezer. And I don't know why it is that they do actually make drinking whiskey so much better. I really recommend everybody get some whiskey balls. You know, you what's can. amazing to me about that is there's some person with an MIT degree in engineering and that's their contribution to civilization. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I also want to introduce you guys to our guest today. So today we're joined by Caleb Kane, who's a consultant and independent researcher of online and offline subcultures. And in 2019, Caleb was the subject of a feature in the New York Times that was entitled The Making of a Right-Wing Radical, which told the story of how he got sucked into YouTube's recommendation algorithm and down a very dark and dangerous rabbit hole of what he called a decentralized cult of right-wing personalities. Fortunately for all of us, he found his way out of that world, and he's going to tell us more about his experience and what we all might learn from it in today's episode. But Caleb, I want to first welcome you to Hotel Bar Sessions. We're really looking forward to hearing your story and your insights. But first, we want to get your drink order and find out what you're ranting or raving about this week. Yeah, it's great to be here. I think for a drink, normally it would just be a whiskey with ice. But I think since it's summertime, I will do fresh lemonade with some Tito's. Yes. <laughs> That's my love language, Tito's. <laughs> yes. It's simple. It's easy. So this week I'm raving about Stranger Things. Particularly the villain Vecna. And I really think that Vecna is the most terrifying supervillain of all time. I think he embodies the archetype of the mass shooter perfectly. Mm. I wrote a video essay on it that's coming out soon. Awesome. We'll definitely put a link to that in our show notes. So, Rick, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about this week? I'm going to go with a margarita. Noelle told me she squeezes the limes fresh. So if I can avoid margarita mix, then I'll always have a margarita. <laughs> this week, I am raving about friends who know you so well, they could buy you the perfect birthday gifts. 
I just received a package yesterday for my birthday from Lee and Cassandra. I'll tell you what they gave me, and then I think you'll see why they were the perfect gifts. One is a really gorgeous rocks glass. Just the style of it says Rick Lee, I think. <laughs> or to use my name as an adverb, the style is very Rick Lee. And then I got what could probably be called a Bible to Broadway musicals. And so I opened the package. I sat down, poured myself a whiskey with a rock and started leafing through the book. So thank you both very much. And thank you for the love. For a medievalist, you age really well. I'm just saying that. <laughs> True fact. True fact. I'm saying if you were in the period that you study, you should have been dead 10 years ago. But it looks good on you, baby. It looks good on you. <laughs> 10, Jesus. For the Middle Ages, I should have been dead 30 years ago. So, Lee, I know we're talking about YouTube's right-wing rabbit hole, but what did you have in mind? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, Caleb, our guest today, was the subject of this really widely read 2019 New York Times piece that was called The Making of a Right-Wing Radical. And one of the things that that piece was trying to highlight was the subtle, severe, and devastating IRL effects of YouTube's quote-unquote up-next algorithm, their recommendation algorithm, which has been proven many times over to promote what in internet slang is sometimes called red-pilling. That is the conversion of users to far-right ideologies and beliefs. Now, it turns out that we've actually touched on this phenomenon a few times before in our season two episode on conspiracy theories, in our season three episode on social media, and in our season four episode on algorithms. But we haven't yet reached all the way down to the actual human lives that are affected by these algorithmically driven internet phenomena. Caleb Kane is an actual human person with an actual human life who has been down that alt-right digital house of mirrors and in part, thanks to philosophy, found his way back out of it. So today we want to introduce our listeners to a first-person account of how right-wing radicalization actually happens on the internet, how it is sustained, and what we might be able to do to combat it. Caleb. So we are going to put the link to that New York Times piece in our show notes, but I'm going to guess that some of our listeners haven't read it and we want to hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. So can you tell us the story of how you got radicalized by YouTube? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's a long story. The very first video that I put up, it took 38 minutes to sit and tell the whole experience. So I'll try to keep it shorter than that. But people can go to my YouTube channel at Faraday Speaks. It's the very first video on the channel if they want to hear the long version. But the abridged version is I grew up in West Virginia, in the eastern panhandle of West Virginia, about two hours out of D.C. So it's not the most impoverished area of West Virginia. It's not Cole County. But growing up, you're in a small town. You don't have a lot of opportunity and you don't really have a wide perspective of the world. I know when I say that immediately, people are going to think like, well, of course, he fell down some right wing rabbit hole. He was uncultured. He was uneducated. He didn't know anything. And and that's not true either, because we had decent enough teachers. I mean, we had some very good teachers in our school. We were taught about the Holocaust every single year. We were taught about Jim Crow and slavery and MLK. I mean, anti-racism in the way that it was being taught in the 90s was not foreign to us. Mm -hmm. That was pretty familiar to all of us. And it was especially familiar to me. I grew up very concerned with social issues. And so I'd say going into high school, if you looked at the music I liked, it was nothing right wing. I listened to Dead Kennedys and I listened to stuff that would have been very anti-establishment at the time. And at that time, I would have been in high school entering probably around 2008, 2009 and graduated about 2011. So the Iraq war was a big thing. I remember where I was at on 9-11. I was in third grade. For my generation, that was very impactful. And for anybody that was socially aware like I was, it was really impactful. 
Mm -hmm. So really, it wasn't normal for me to be involved in anything that you could consider racist or sexist. I mean, we have biases that we grow up in culture, right? But outside of really trying to dive deep, you couldn't say I had any bigotry inside of me. I think there were biases there. But for me, the story of me falling into the alt-right, it takes place a few years after I had already become politically activated in high school. So, you know, in high school, I'm attempting to watch Noam Chomsky interviews. I couldn't understand what the hell the guy was saying, but I knew it was probably something smart and probably something I agreed with. I was watching Michael Moore documentaries, and a lot of the stuff that I watched, honestly, was on YouTube. So, you know, I go through high school. I was the kind of kid that I didn't really do much. I got to my senior year, and I had a guidance counselor pull me into the room, and she said, We got to get you ready for next year, figure out what it is that you want to do. And I said, oh, well, I'm not going to go to the military because I don't support that. And I don't think I'm going to go to college because what would I go to college for? It's probably a waste of time. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll figure it out. And she said, okay, I don't mean that. I mean, next year here at the high school. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, you're going to fail. You've got a 1.2 GPA and you're not going to pass. And so I sat and I talked to her. And honestly, I had a lot of trouble with my family growing up. It was very much the stereotypical situation where you don't feel like you're listened to and you feel like you're different than everybody and you feel alone. Not that I didn't have friends, but they all felt that way as well. Mm-hmm. And mm. for the first time ever, I sat and I just started talking to this woman and I felt like someone was listening to me for the first time. And more importantly, an adult and even more importantly, an adult who had authority And so I sat and we talked and I pretty much told her my life story. And then at the end of it, she said, "Okay, well, you have to pass eight classes and there's only seven periods in a day. So you're going to take Spanish two online and you're going to take Spanish one in the classroom. And then if you pass all that, then you'll graduate. And so I did that because I felt a bond with her and I felt like I didn't want to let her down. I ended up graduating with like a one point six or whatever the bare minimum is. It was literally like Mm -hmm. the bare minimum. And I couldn't get into a decent school. And so she said, go to this community college in West Virginia. You can raise your GPA and then go to a better school. Did that. I went to that school. And then immediately I got there and just fell back on old habits. Would just go out and party, would sleep all day, would just stay inside on the computer. I had a lot of social anxiety, had a lot of depression. I realized later I had undiagnosed ADHD and complex PTSD from my childhood. I was just a mess. And of course, I didn't have my support structure around anymore. And so I ended up dropping out, bounced around, living at different places for a little while with friends. And then eventually I ended up back at West Virginia in my hometown, living with my grandfather and just totally depressed. And if you've picked up on the story already, that's the worst thing that can happen to somebody like me. I already didn't want to be there in that town. I already didn't like Uh it. I'm just stuck there. And then I'm thinking in my head all the time, wow, all these people growing up, your friends, your guidance counselor, you know, some of your teachers telling you, oh, Caleb, you're going places. It's like, yeah, I'm really fucking going places. I can't even get through freshman level courses. Mm. So I basically laid in bed all day, depressed. And the only thing I had to cope with it was the internet. And so I went on the internet and I went to YouTube. I'm on YouTube and I'm really just watching a lot of gaming content. Eventually, I find this video by a gaming streamer that I used to watch in high school named Athene. And he has this video called God is in the Neurons. There was a lot of pseudoscience in the documentary, but the most important thing that stood out to me was this idea of neuroplasticity. You know, he's explaining neuroscience. And I took to that idea a lot. Where I grow up, you grow up with a fixed mindset thinking that if you're not good at something, you're just not good at it. But suddenly I realized, oh, I can like rewire my brain. I can rewire my depression. I can learn all the topics I need to learn to pass through school. And so I went on this journey of self-improvement. And really, I told myself that I'm going to empty my brain out and reprogram myself. Yeah, a very yeah. toxic idea. And what I think it did was it opened me up to be sucked into a cult. I would just watch more and more self-help videos and... Eventually, the recommendation algorithm gave me some video on self-help by a guy named Stefan Molyneux. I started watching his videos. He had a similar background to me. I really resonated with him over that. He was kind of like a father figure to me in a lot of weird ways. I wanted a life like he had. You know, he had a family, kids. He ran a podcast. He had started businesses. And so I just started to emulate this guy. And I would listen to all of his stuff. And he had thousands of podcasts that he had recorded and put on YouTube. He would do call-in shows. He would talk about psychology, but then he would also talk about social issues and politics. He was a conservative. He was a libertarian and anarcho-capitalist of all things. And Steph would say, basically, 
that the reason he had such a great life is because he had these values. He was very much about values and first principles and how important those were. So I just started to adopt all his values. Then, you know, he starts getting into other things. He starts getting into what we would call the red pill. He starts getting into anti-feminism, anti-immigration and race realism. You guys are probably familiar with this as academics. Mm -hmm. It's not bigotry in the sense you just have like a core emotional reaction to some group, but it's more about looking at trends and data in all different fields and showing that there's differences in the races. And those trends are real. They exist. But what race realism teaches you is that these trends are all caused by biology, that that is the reason. And specifically in Molyneux's case, he was very focused on IQ. I think this resonated with me as someone who was young, who grew up around a lot of people that I thought were stupid. <laughs> Honestly, I think there's a lot of elitism that was already born in me to accept this. I just fell right into it. And that was a lens that I would look at the whole world through. This lens of race realism and anti-feminism and all the other values that Steph instilled in me. Steph would then do interviews with other people and I would watch those. And then I would naturally trust those people and what they were saying because, well, Steph kind of endorsed them in the interview. Right, right. Then the algorithm would start feeding up more videos that were similar mm. and I would just watch those. It just began this process of me becoming more and more right wing. And at first, I didn't even realize that's what was happening. It was kind of weird to me. It was kind of surprising to me that I was right wing. I never would have thought that would happen to me. But this is the idea. When you take the red pill, I was under the impression that I was now seeing objective reality. And it was uncomfortable and it was raw, but it was true. And everybody else, all the leftists and progressives and Democrats and liberals, they just were too emotional and could not face reality. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was kind of empowering. And in some ways, it did improve my life. I got a job. I stopped feeling sorry for myself. But at the same time, I was also adopting a lot of social values that I now see as really toxic. So, Caleb, first of all, thanks for sharing your story. And, you know, I watched your 38-minute YouTube video, and it was really powerful, I think. You said a couple of things that were striking to me. The first thing, and this may seem like it's coming out of left field, but you mentioned that when you were younger in high school and so on, you were interested in punk, and you started talking a lot about the music that you were listening to. And the first thing that came to my mind is that punk is a movement that has both a left wing and a right wing to it. I mean, there are a lot of right wing skinhead racist punks out there. You came back around to it when you were talking about Stefan being, of all things, an anarcho-capitalist. And it suddenly occurred to me that there is a strange way in which a kind of extreme left is very close to a kind of extreme right. They share a lot of principles, but then also in an odd way, a lot of culture. Obviously, I think that there's a lot of people that might be listening. If there's any like far left people listening, they're going to like shriek and scream at this moment. But There's some far left people hosting. Uh, well, no, I know, it's fine. <laughs> well, the idea that, you know, some people term it horseshoe theory, which I don't particularly like, but there are similarities. When you look at a lot of far-right movements, they borrowed a lot from the left. Um, I mean, Mussolini was a socialist. Hitler was kind of a lefty dude in some ways, I think. You know, the guy was a vegan. He was an artist. Um, End of list. <laughs> yeah, list, list doesn't go too far, huh? Is that a long list? <laughs> sort of like interested in socialism. Yeah, the list kind of cuts. You know, even Mussolini knew more about that than he did. <laughs> I think that there's temperamental similarities. Also, you got to take into account the fact that if you're actually talking about a real far left, they're both revolutionary. Mm. Right. Of course, they're going to see eye to eye on things or they're going to have similarities or they're going to have points of agreement. Punk's probably the most obvious example of that, where even a lot of the people on the far left or far right of that aren't particularly politically educated. They just hate the system. They hate the establishment. Right. And what might be relevant for later on in this conversation is the way in which the far right is very much interested in a lot of the same theory I've come to realize that the left is interested in. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, you even got Heidegger, right? Part of the Nazis. And there's a strong relationship between the anti-establishment, the sort of theory that people use to analyze the world, and then just certain temperamental particularities. 
I'm very curious in terms of the process that you described earlier. And it seems like this slow accretion of ideas that leads you toward this way of thinking. In your opinion, do you think there is a central theme that runs through these layers and these various voices and these various topics that eventually create this coherent worldview? So do you think it was just a mishmash of things or that there was something steadily, though subtly, being offered to you? I do think that there is a through line that runs through these things. And also, I do want to separate conservatives from reactionaries, or we could say Mm -hmm. neo-reactionaries. I mean, people often don't understand this difference. I think on this podcast, you guys probably understand, your audience probably has an awareness that conservatives are very much comfortable in the current state of history, the current moment in history, whereas reactionaries aren't. I mean, the reactionaries that I pay attention to these days, they're very much looking to go against the Enlightenment. They're looking to go against liberalism as a whole, whereas conservatives are very much comfortable with liberalism. They just have you know opinions about sexes or races or whatever. Mm. Making that distinction now to just talk about the right wing in general and then how it ends up in the far right, there's a couple through lines I see with the right wing. One is a sense of elitism. Not that this isn't present on the left. I mean, I even know people in far left circles that have a sense of elitism, but there is a sense of elitism and I think a sense of hierarchy that generates out of that. Yeah. And the right wing, I think, is just a bit more comfortable with leaning into that, and especially when you get into the far right. So in the far right, you'll get these very distorted, hardcore Nietzschean values, right, of pretty much a social Darwinism, Nazi interpretation of Nietzsche. So there's that. There's the elitism. And when you get into the hardcore neo-reactionaries, you really see that when they start to venerate things like monarchy and they want a genetic bloodline. They really believe in the biology so much that they see some people are just more suited to lead than others. Another through line I see with the far right, the social issues are undergirded by the philosophy that they have. So with the hierarchy, naturally, they see men as most capable of being at the top of that hierarchy. And so while you do see a lot of people running into these ideologies through resentment of women that they have, the core of that is that they generally see men being more capable. We could go into race when you start to see white supremacist versions of reactionaries because there are non-white versions of reactionary ideology. But when you look at white versions of it, Again, they see white people at the top of that hierarchy. So hierarchy is really important. But what I also see is a sort of bloodism within the far right. Mm. And, and conservatives and libertarians, I think this is a through line that cuts through them as well, where they are not comfortable with the current moment in history. Their communities are starting to separate themselves and atomize themselves. They see their culture is dissolving as a result of that. They see the family is dissolving as a result of that. And I also think that when we start to speed up and we look at the current age, what we probably could refer to as post-modernity, they see the technology is having this effect. So you get up to the current age that we're in now, think that transgender issues are largely an impact of technology. Not that these people didn't exist before, but that our conceptions of that are transforming due to technology. And when I say technology, I mean the word broadly. I don't just mean the hormones or the surgery. Makeup. The development of makeup is extended so much that people can now pass more in public. And so you see that category expanding out beyond just dysphoria or an identity association. So what I see on the right is they do not like the expansive categories that are coming as a result of technology in identity, within the family structure, within our social structure. And I could sympathize with reactionaries in certain ways. And I think a lot of people on the left could sympathize in certain ways when we look at how capitalism has been responsible for this atomization, when we look at, again, how technology has been responsible for a lot of this. But for them... It's very much a desire to return. And so you see that constantly. You see two concepts come up a lot on the right, return and exit. Return is more of your neo-fascist or your sort of like reactionary monarch. They want to just roll back the clock. And then exit becomes more of this libertarian and techno-libertarian urge to just leave society in some Ayn Rand fever dream. (laughs) But tying all those things together, because even when you go and you talk to the right, and you know, nowadays they're calling themselves the dissonant right when you get past the conservatives. Really, the only thing that ties them all together is their hatred of the left and of liberals. That really mm-hmm. is the only thing that really ties the whole thing together. So there's a far right personality that I listen to, and I agree with his assessment on this. He doesn't see the far right as a movement, but he sees it as an avant-garde. And I would have to agree with that, that it's a collection of eclectic ideas, which are not mainstream, 
which represent a sort of vibe, but don't really represent a movement that's coherent. I'd like to follow up on that and also give you a way to finish the story of your YouTube rabbit hole journey. But I want to follow up on this point about the extreme right or the dissident right or the avant-garde right in relation to the Trump years. I want to give you a chance to tell us How did you get from where you were in 2015 to where you are now? I know that in your own account of this on your YouTube channel, you credit Natalie Wynn, who runs the YouTube channel ContraPoints, in part with that. So we'd like to give philosophy some credit for <laughs> for your exit from the right-wing rabbit hole. But also, it seems like both your plunging the depths of that rabbit hole and your exit from it overlapped with the Trump years. I would have found Stefan Molyneux in probably late 2013, 2014. The first political video I remember of his was on the Michael Brown shooting. Mm. Mm. So you make that the starting point and then you start to accelerate. It's a slow slope in. I mean, I think it was Charles that made the point that it seems like it's a slow collection of ideas. And it is because you're experiencing cognitive dissonance all along the way. I mean, the Michael Brown shooting in particular was a large cognitive dissonance for me because I had particular ideas about how the black community was experiencing things. And then Molyneux and all of them, what they did, and this is, I really wish that the journalists and the liberals and the leftists would learn from this, but the way he was perceived in the media was very different from the actual story that took place. But then the right took that gap in perception and was like, see, they're just lying. See, the black community is not going through anything. You know, all their problems are a problem of will and or it's the Democrats fault. You know, it's always the liberals fault somehow. Those little moments of cognitive dissonance like that, where they would show gaps and then they would shift it into their perspective. That kept happening over and over and over. And I would say that the peak of my beliefs and emotions around these issues would have been 2016, 2017, which would have been the height of the Trump phenomenon. It's not just me that was experiencing this. It's a whole trend of a whole lot of people that went through the same thing, whether they came out of it later or not. It was a generational trend. And there's been different peaks to that in later years. But for my generation that got involved in it, 2016, 2017 would have been the peak. And by peak, you mean the peak of what? Disillusionment? Energy. energy. Okay. It was peak energy. For me, it was peak belief. Mm-hmm. The alt-right, you know, which disbanded after 2017, for a while, a lot of people on the far right would make fun of them saying they're stuck in 2016. They just want to repeat that moment. Because the memes, you know, you had the memes. There was a lot of energy in that moment. It was very, for lack of a better word, no, I mean, no, it was a very exciting time to be involved in that stuff. So 2017 happens, Charlottesville happens. I think for me, Charlottesville didn't shift any of my ideas, but it was a little bit of a wake-up call where I saw, wow, there's actual Nazis. Like, If you were to look at my beliefs, I believed in race realism. I believed in a return to a traditional society. In a lot of ways, I was being impacted by right-wing ideology, but I wasn't aware of that because it wasn't being sold to me that way. It was being sold to mm. me like this was libertarianism. This was patriotism. This was conservatism. This was not being an idiot and having access to reality. But when I saw the Nazis at Charlottesville, I was like, oh, that alt-right thing, that term that I use sometimes, that actually is full of like shitty people. <laughs> <laughs> They're not fine people. <laughs> Yeah, you know, there were great people on both sides, but there were also not great people on both sides. And so I realized that there was not great people on my side. Because before that, I just thought, like, Nazis don't exist. Like, okay, there's neo-Nazis, but they don't exist. So, Caleb, there were a couple of moments in your YouTube video on your channel that really struck me, and I thought they were both powerful and convincing. And one of the things you said in relation to starting to watch and listen to Natalie Wynn, who has a philosophy podcast, was, and this is a quote from your YouTube video, my response to her was not just an emotion, it was an understanding. And so I wonder how that move from the emotion to the understanding helped you climb back out of this rabbit hole. Yeah, Natalie and some of the left-wing content creators were really relevant. So looking past post-Charlottesville, I have this conception that there is a far right that can go too far, that is relevant, that is real. And then I ended up watching a video by a content creator by the name of Destiny, Stephen Bunnell. Mm -hmm. He's this really controversial liberal streamer who 
would argue with people on the far right. And the first video I saw was him arguing with Lauren Southern. They argued about immigration into Europe, and he completely destroyed her on the topic. And for me, it was like, well, how do you do that? Because I have access to objective reality. How could you do that? And that's where philosophy comes in because you know that's the whole point of it, right, is the search for truth, the search for quote-unquote objective reality, although it seems to take us further and further from that than it does get us closer sometimes. I think that something that I was always searching for was just truth. And when I would watch Destiny or when later I would find ContraPoints through Destiny's channel, Natalie, Natalie Wynn, they would basically fill in the holes that the far right was wrenching open, that liberal media couldn't address, that a lot of leftists couldn't address because they didn't understand theory or they just were too emotional to get involved in the issue or too ideologically possessed. But Natalie and Destiny had a very like detached perspective on a lot of things. And Natalie in particular, she would do online, they call it a Socratic dialogue, although I think that's a bit overusing the term, but she would play two characters and present both sides of an argument. And so I felt like that was really fair because it wasn't like someone was just telling me you're a racist or on the Michael Brown thing that like, oh, it was just a result of evil cops and they just hate black people. And and he was perfectly fine and he did nothing wrong. And I'm like, I'm watching videotapes. I know that's not true. But then I watch Natalie and she gives voice to the nuance in the situation. Mm. But then she also did something else that I'd never really experienced before. She went more in depth. And this is where going from an emotional feeling of something to having an understanding She did one video in particular in Baltimore where she went into all the history. And I guess nowadays you would just refer to this as critical race theory, right? It was basically giving a systemic view of the situation and basically explained like how Baltimore got to be the way it is and how it got to be such a crime ridden place. It allowed me to look at the situation, understand where the issues were and understand how it's fucked up. But then also it allowed me to just have a bit more nuance. You know, also at the time, I was talking to people in Destiny's Discord, people from all over the world, from all different backgrounds. And, you know, I'd grown up around black people and gay people. It was probably the only other group outside of myself that I was familiar with. But, you know, I started to talk to more black people in Discord. And I also had a friend at the time that I would go and hang out with. And he was black. I worked with him. And we would watch a lot of Tupac movies and listen to Bone Thugs and Harmony. And before that, I'd only listen to like Biggie, which is like bullshit music. You know, you're not getting anything out of listening. I mean, Biggie's great, but it's just party music, you know. But I started listening to some of these other guys. I started realizing that the way things got so bad, it makes perfect sense. And you can trail it all the way back through history. And even growing up, I had this black and white view that, oh, all this bad racism happened. But then, you know, the racism went away because of MLK. But it's still sort of (laughs) here. But the problem is only ever when you have bad racist people, right? When you don't have bad racist people in the room, then the problem's not there. And I can expand that out to every issue. I'm using race because I think it's a really easy one to point to. But Mm -hmm. I just started to expand that view out to everything. So where in high school, I had the sort of black and white liberal view. And then I adopted the black and white conservative view, destiny and contrapoints. And by talking to all these people and listening to all these different things, I started to have a very nuanced view. Mm -hmm. And then I just expanded that out to basically every issue. That's when I think that the shift really started to accelerate. And that period started in 2018. And by 2019, I'm not even right wing anymore. I mean, there are things I respect about actual conservatives. And I can even sympathize with certain feelings that reactionaries have about our point in time and this desolate landscape it's put us in. But I came to realize that things were just a lot more nuanced. And then I just started to empathize with all those groups more. Even if I thought the far right had certain points on certain things, I just couldn't bring myself to be a race realist or to be a misogynist or think that I should be above women. There's there's just certain things that I just couldn't believe now based on my experiences. And I think that we do have a lot of problems in the period of time that we're in, but the only way to get through them is to go through. There's no going backwards. Hey, listeners, if you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their all-fair thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. 
So I want to pick back up on this point about the influence of people like Natalie Wynn and Destiny Bonnell, who are part of a new group of YouTubers who call themselves the Bread Tube. And that's a reference to the left-wing anarchist Peter Kropotkin's 1892 book called The Conquest of Bread. But basically, Wynn and Bonnell and people like them from the left are enacting a strategy, as it was called in the New York Times article about UK Lib, an algorithmic hijacking. So basically, they're not only talking about many of the same topics as all alt-right and far-right creators do, but in some cases responding directly to those videos, you know, in order to get their videos recommended to the same audience. And so I just thought this might be a good time to talk about YouTube's role in the spread of right-wing ideas. So YouTube's been criticized about this for years, and it has developed different recommendation algorithms in response to those criticisms. The current, I think, algorithm that's being used is called reinforce. But reinforce, like every other algorithm that YouTube has ever used, is just a reinforcement algorithm that is a kind of long-term addiction machine. That's that's <laughs> what it is. That's how it functions. And so I'm wondering how, in your experience, do you see this progression of recommendations moving to the right. Sometimes people say that it doesn't matter what you look up on YouTube. If I look up on YouTube, how to water hydrangeas, and I just keep clicking the up next, that at some point I'm going to believe that the Holocaust didn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) So the algorithm has been changed a lot, and a lot of these people have been deplatformed. I don't think that it's as partial to that sort of right-wing content these days, although there are still a good amount of what I would say are proper reactionary content creators on the platform. Of course, you still have your sort of conservative voices out there that lean into that stuff a bit too much. But one reason it's going to be more prevalent on the platform is that's the culture that we live in to a large degree. You have a lot of socially progressive stuff on the platform, but whenever it came to talking about deeper politics, I think that the right just had to go to YouTube because it had nowhere else to go. Right. When you zoom out, look at an institutional culture, macro media culture, it looks very liberal. You know, and today it looks very progressive, at least aesthetically. I think when you start to get onto YouTube, yeah, I think that a lot of those content creators had to use that platform to get those messages across. And they did that intentionally. And they did that with a lot of support from people in their constituency. So, you know, the Mercers dumped a lot of money into these alt-light YouTube personalities Steve Bannon was heavily involved in a lot of activity online. Yeah, and they are very good at responding to what you previously called the deplatforming moves of the left, right? So when 4chan became persona non grata on the internet, the alt-right moved to YouTube. Something like 94% of people between the ages of 18 and 25 use YouTube, by far overwhelming any other social media site that is used by young people. To make this algorithmic choice a little bit more explicit, what I find very both compelling and also, frankly, incredibly disturbing about your story, Caleb, is that you told us that you went to YouTube to help you with the struggles you were having with depression, anxiety, and so on, and probably came to learn that maybe you had ADHD, and that somehow in that self-help journey you were on, YouTube fed you. Well, first, maybe innocently, maybe Steph was helping people with their struggles and so on. But that from there, the algorithm, and one could say in a nefarious way, very smartly saw, hey, if you're interested in this guy, you might also be interested in other neo-Nazis. You know, I mean, I jumped several steps there. But that's the (laughs) moment that I find the algorithm has failed And that someone who's online trying to work out difficulties in their own lives is being fed videos that are of much more political character and moving toward the right. That's the moment where I find the algorithm to be quite disturbing. And culpable. And culpable. Yeah. And culpable is the word for this, because it seems to me, and this was in the New York Times article, that part of the incentive for YouTube to get more views was as... 
they said in the article, to start sending people to crazy town. So you had to up the ante, create much more extravagant, much more intense experiences along this particular theme. So in a sense, if you're going to YouTube, looking for self-help videos, trying to get yourself out of a situation, trying to find internally driven resolution, then this idea of self-control, the idea of will, the idea of agency becomes the through line. And you're going to have these alt-right speakers who are saying, well, this is about individual choice and this is about what we do and who are you inherently and what's your essential being and so forth and so on. So in a weird way, I see the logic of that if the incentive is to intensify the thematic thread in one's viewing. Yeah. So you guys are saying a lot that I think about often. The first thing I'd like to preface with, and not that you guys are saying this, but it's not so much that YouTube was benefiting from sending people to politically radical content or that they wanted that. Right. Really, that was a side effect of all this. When you look at what's functionally going on, it goes back to that question of technology and the moment in history we're in. So the moment in history being we're in this capital society where everybody's been atomized and where our institutions, they fail us. And that's not just the thing about we need more funding for programs because that's not the issue. The issue is the Mm -hmm. fundamental structure at which we do everything. It's the motivations that we do everything. It's the attitudes that we do everything. And the attitude, the motivation is always one of extraction. And I don't even think it's always just profit. I think that that's like sometimes a red herring. I think sometimes it can be a bit more sinister than that. The attitude is one of supremacy. And even if you don't get into racial or gender supremacy, we're all still supremacists. The way we treat animals, the way we treat the environment, the way we treat our desires and what we want to do and how we want our society to be structured. So that's the moment in history that creates the conditions. And then when you look at the technology, it also creates the opportunity to exploit those conditions. Exactly. Basically, you're touching on addiction. And this is my fundamental issue with how all of our technologies are currently structured to do whatever you want with no self-control or restriction. You have that ideology and then you enter in all these. And I don't even have a problem particular with any of the actual things that I'm going to describe, but the ways in which they have been utilized. You look at gambling, you look at video content, watching movies, you look at video games, you look at pornography, you look at food. At cryptocurrency. That Well, that could go back into gambling, right? right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And gambling comes back around to all these things because when right. you look at mm-hmm. all of the things that I just named, and I always get hit on the porn one for some reason. People are like, well, don't talk bad about my porn, but like, what is up with that? It's like- <laughs> I mean, it's porn. You don't ever have to ask what is up with that. Right, right, right. <laughs> porn has its own reasons. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it goes back to the gambling aspect that everything is designed now to suck up your attention, keep you viewing it for as long as they possibly can, yeah. create your whole identity around that thing to where like they say they want you to think of Amazon as a circle. Well, video games, they want you to think of video games as a circle. They want you to think of porn as a circle. They want you to think of binge watching Walking Dead as a circle where your whole life becomes that thing. It's like Apple. They're like, you need to be a part of the Apple community. Exactly. And I think that yeah. is in this like postmodern hellscape we find ourselves in. That's all that people have nowadays. And so when you say, well, it's weird that you went to YouTube. Of course I went to YouTube. I wasn't going to go to the doctor. Fuck them. I don't trust them. (laughs) I don't trust them. And and I still kind of don't trust them. And I even go to therapy. You know, I wasn't going to go to them. I was going to go to the places that I saw as more dissonant, the places that I saw as more accessible, the places that I saw where, oh, no, I can trust these people because they're just sitting behind a webcam. And that's like, you know, enter the sinister moment. Well, Caleb, Guy Debord is clapping somewhere from beyond. You just (laughs) Society of the spectacle in two minutes. Brilliant. You said this, Caleb, maybe back in our first segment that the alt right, the dissident right, emerges from out of a critique of modernity. But so too does a lot of the left. The critical theory trajectory of Marxism takes up basically from the same point, a critique of modernity and the problems that we have in modernity. I'd like to come back maybe to what you consider the postmodern hellscape. I mean, I'm not a postmodernist, I don't think. But one of the really beautiful points I think you made in your video goes back to this atomism point. 
right? And the linking of capitalism and the rise of liberalism in the political sense with a capital L, the focus on the individual, and then capitalism's role in atomizing us. You said in the video, the alt-right movement appealed to the romantic in me, my desire to be strong and not to be controlled. If left and right can take off from this critique of modernity, what accounts for then the difference in the directions that one would take in this? So I don't necessarily see how the critique of modernity now means white supremacy or now means homophobia or in other words, what pushes one at that fork in the road? in one direction or the other. And I think you're in a unique position to answer this because you were pushed in one direction, came back and, you know, are now rethinking and maybe moving in the other direction. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the short, easy answer that someone would give is, well, they're racist and sexist and homophobic. Sure. I think that just begs the question, though. It's like, well, why are they racist, sexist, and homophobic? Mm. We're just the mean white men just sitting around one day and said, man, we're just going to be mean white men. And then we're just, I mean, there's history. <laughs> I was going to say, that's the constitutional convention. Uh, well, there's, there's, an element, Come there's, on, there's, there's, there's an element of collaboration, right? But like a lot of times on the right, what you see is this fallacy that old is better. So they look at pre-modern traditions and they say, well, they had all these great civilizations, societies, and look at us today. And I think they centralize that without looking at the other factors. And I don't even like to just use the word capitalism broadly sometimes because I think it's more complicated than that. But they don't look at the implications that have been put on us in modern society and why we couldn't even return to that if we wanted to. But I think that that is a big point of it. And that's why I say there's a Luddite tendency on the right, whereas I think the people that have more of a progressive attitude towards things, which I think there's areas where that can go wrong as well. But I think that the progressives... They just have a different temperament where they're more willing and accepting to just go into the unknown. By the way, I'm an actual medievalist, and I don't want to fucking go back. <laughs> There's also this aspect of beauty that yeah. the right has. And I think mm. that when mm -hmm. they look at a lot of the art of the past, I think that's where romantic comes in. They have this romantic idealization of what they consider beauty. Mm. Well, and we did a show last season on utopia. And I think part of it is, what's your utopic vision? What does that look like? What's perfect for you? And is it in this glorified past? Or is it in this this open-ended, radically different future. You see this idealization of the past and of sort of beauty on the left as well, especially anarchist communities. You'll see this a lot, especially with anarcho-primitivist communities that are against the Industrial Revolution. You'll see this a lot. There are a lot of groups, and that's why I draw this line of Luddism through political lines that I think crosses from left to right. You know, even Rousseau talked about that when he talks about this noble past that used to exist and that we've fallen from and that we have to try to like get back to that somehow. Yeah, if I could return to a couple of points that you guys have made. So these include Caleb saying that he has a lot of criticisms of postmodernism, Rick saying that he's not a postmodern, and also Charles saying that the question today is really, what can this ideology do for me? I think that we kind of need to step back a step and say there are two ways of talking about postmodernism. We could talk about postmodernism as critical of modernity. That's the kind of postmodernism that I completely embrace. Sign and that I can right. say, look, yeah, I'm critical of classically enlightenment, liberal centrality of the individual, critical of the kinds of reliance on binaries that have existed for 2000 years, et cetera. But then I think that there's a kind of perverted postmodernism, which I like to call perv modernism. If you guys <laughs> want to use that, you totally can. But it's a perverted postmodernism, which is still entirely reliant on classical liberal notions of the individual and entirely egocentric questions that are about, for example, what does this ideology do for me? How does it make my life better? I think that those are kind of perverted notions of postmodernism, perv postmodernism or perv modernism, right? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? They're still modernist, but they're just a perverted notion of modernism. The perversion comes about through, as Caleb has been suggesting all along, a techno-capitalist emergence in which we have these new tools, new manners of centering the individual and refabricating how the world can serve us. I totally agree with your assessment. Usually when I use the term 
postmodernism, I'm talking about the period, from my understanding of it, the period of postmodernity, which is this techno-capitalist. And we could even draw this line back to the beginning of the 20th century, probably, right? Because you start to see real acceleration of this. But then you get into our age, like post-internet 2.0, and now it's glaringly obvious. Those are the things that worry me. And I would say that, yeah, like that perv modernism that you're talking about, and it is perverted because it's about being a pervert. It's about being a pervert about everything, being a pervert about yourself, being a pervert about the world around you. You just want to consume everything. Everything's just about your own enjoyment. That's what ideology is. That's why you see kids online. They all have their own individual extremist flag now that they get printed out and sent to them on eBay. Like you go on their Twitter bios and they have these extended bios of their each little particular beliefs. And and you see it on the right too, which is the really ironic thing is that the far right is rebelling against this postmodern identity that you're describing, this perverted identity, but they are still captivated by it. They're still just as entranced 100%, by it, right? Yeah. But that's very much the stuff that concerns me. It's the stuff that I think is creating a lot of this cultural political turmoil that you're saying. And I think that, yeah, there is that urge to look back to pre-modernists. I've seen kids that grew up anti-racist, again, maybe not in the sense that they didn't have historical systemic views of things that they did. They probably wouldn't have fallen into that. But like their liberal anti-racist education was completely erased because some guy who was racist told them, oh, hey, all that postmodern crap, I have a solution for that. It's why I think that people should read more theory. Here, here. I think you can still have your enjoyments. And even have your vices and people pre-modern times had their vices without falling into this postmodern perspective where it is. It's a very like egocentric, solipsistic perspective. And it's put into us by the conditions of the world around us, which is I log on to an app. I have an algorithm specifically tailored for me. And it feeds and, me porn. It feeds right. me porn. It feeds me my video games, which are specific. Pervy postmodernism. You know, like it feeds me my video games that confirm my ideology. I can pick up my ideology and put it down whenever I need because I live in a virtual world. I live in a world of abundance. Even if I'm poor, I kind of live in a world of abundance where so I don't have attachments to really too much. Unless I really have a strong attachment to my family or I really have you know, responsibilities with children, I can just pick up and move and go wherever and be whatever I want at any time. That's creating chaos. And I think you have your sides that are rebelling against that left and right. So you have your like hippie return to the land types and you have your anarchists. And then you have your other types, which even include right wingers, which are moving the other direction, yeah. sort of embracing this postmodern perspective. It's just this false dialectic. I think that we need to take a breath and figure out where we're at even in history to move forward. And again, it's about going through. There's no return because you can't return even if you wanted to. I think like the term modernism and even modernity, I think in the arts, it means one thing. And in philosophy, it means something else. Caleb, you got to where I was going to go, namely that there is something postmodern about our culture that is independent of any philosophers that might be thrown under the label postmodern, like Derrida, for example, or Foucault, or any number of philosophers who might be called postmodern, precisely because they engage in a critique of modernity versus a postmodern culture in which to pick up Leotard's way of phrasing it, we've lost a grand narrative. And culturally, one way to put that, and I think this is where you were going, Caleb, is so therefore everyone for themselves and get as much as you can eat, drink, and fuck because- We're back in the wild. We've like reverted, didn't Hannah Arendt talk about it? We've reverted to savagery. Like we're just, we're all back in the woods again. Um, Yeah. So I think that we all know that the rise of alt-right content on YouTube is the result of the fact that that content is revenue producing. But even an average skeptic has to be motivated to ask what's in it for them other than cash. Like, I believe that they're truth believers. And I suppose maybe as somebody who's been on the other side, (laughs) I want to ask you, what are the ideas, actual principles, actual theoretical productions that we need to be super wary of when we get on YouTube? I think, and this just kind of, you know, recaps most of what we've been saying here is that when you get on YouTube, you have to be aware that we live in a chaotic time in history. 
I was watching Rick Roderick and he said that one of the most dangerous people in a postmodern society is the guy that comes out and says, it's just that simple. You know, it's just that simple. Mm -hmm. I think that that's always been the case during chaotic times. But nowadays we live in a perpetual just whooshing where there's never stable ground and technology doesn't seem to be slowing. And I imagine that our culture won't start to stabilize until that force starts to slow down. And so when you hear people telling you it's just that simple, you have to be careful. And you also have to realize that you have a almost narcissistic urge to just personalize your ideology and to be consumed in that and that it's very powerful and it's going to make you feel very comfortable within our current period in history. And I even think that the people that are producing this stuff, 99.9% of them, I would throw Peterson in there. I would throw Shapiro in there. You know, there are very few people I would say are genuine grifters. They're completely immersed in ideology as well. They're caught up in it. And the scariest thing to me about this hyper real ideological environment is you're not attached to reality and you can't be trusted to make decisions. Mm. What I find interesting in that is it closes a circle that you opened up previously, namely that the ideology that, and I would throw Tucker Carlson in with all of these, especially more so lately, that the separation between the right and the alt-right is, I think, getting smaller and smaller and smaller. But the ideology that that is driving them goes back again, I think, to this romanticism that I quoted you as raising, which then makes that you're paying attention to me one of the feedbacks I get, right? So now I'm the center of attention. Mm-hmm. And what's, I think, slightly dangerous about our technological moment is as long as we're still on an ad based revenue model for a lot of the internet. That attention is also revenue producing. And so these kind of go hand in hand. The attention, the attention economy, pay attention to me. And I think this is related to it's just that simple. And I also just want to say, Caleb, I love I have not heard any West Virginia in your talking at all until you said it's just that simple. And then a little West Virginia came out. (laughs) Yeah, well, I was I was trying to do a Texan accent, but it it just comes out as a West Virginian (laughs) accent, to be honest with you. (laughs) But not only are those people not capable of making proper decisions, I don't think they're capable of teaching anybody. And I don't think that people should be going on and listening to these guys when half the time they don't understand the moment in history we're in. And even if they did, they're so afraid to say, I don't know, and that none of us know, and that the future's unknown, and maybe we should be skeptical, and maybe we should all communicate together to figure out the future and be a little bit more understanding of each other. No one's willing to say that right now. No one on the far left will say that. No one on the far right will say that. No one in the center will say that. Our elites won't say that. Everyone's afraid to say, I don't know, man. That, I think, is the most dangerous thing that we're facing right now. You know, that's how philosophy's helped me. And I think that people just need to be a lot more critical than they currently are. I think you are so right about that, Caleb. And yet, that is the most dangerous idea that I am susceptible to. Because I think that that is the idea that most easily pushes me into a kind of conservatism that is like, let's just trust experts. Like, stop getting on YouTube. Stop trying to learn everything from social media. We have actual authorities that we can trust that have peer-reviewed journals and et cetera. And then I'm turn around and look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, who is this authoritarian (laughs) that I have become? You have to embrace the nihilist position. You have to fully embrace it. But it's like terrifying because you're like looking at the void. You're like, I don't know. And they don't know. (laughs) No, no, there's got to be someone in this room that knows. That guy must know. He's got Fauci knows. Pelosi knows. Zizek knows. Oh, wait, Zizek doesn't know anything. Fuck. I am afraid of the void. It is. It is terrifying. And that's where I think the perv modernism that I was describing before comes in because let's admit it, you know, we're in late stage capitalism. We're in the midst of a climate crisis, constant biological pandemics. You know, we just want to feel safe. We just want to feel okay. There are very good reasons to be self-centered right now. And I do think the kind of quote unquote postmodernism, which is perverted, that grows out of that is not something that you can blame people for, but it is something that we can combat. Mm-hmm. 
Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. Well, Noelle is not being self-centered. She's being bar-centered. Okay, also a little (laughs) self-centered. But uh, she's issued last call. And so, unfortunately, we're going to have to get out of here. But before we do, I just want to remind everyone that we do have a Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. So please check us out. Your help could really go a long way to supporting us. Yeah. And before we roll out of here, Caleb, I just want to say that you've been one of the most interesting interview guests that we've had on this podcast. And I really appreciate you coming. I'm so glad that you've come back into the light (laughs) and out of and out of the rabbit hole of YouTube. But I also realize that even when I say you've come back into the light, that there's a implicit conservative bullshit story that I'm telling myself, even in that. So Caleb, thanks so much for coming. Yeah, today. thanks, Caleb. Yeah, man, great meeting you. I appreciate the thoughtful discussion, and you know, it, it was great to talk to people that spend a lot of time talking about philosophy and thinking about this stuff. So yeah, it was an honor. So I've called a cab. I'm going to get Caleb to ride with me in my cab because I have like eight thousand more questions. <laughs> me too. Shotgun. <laughs> All right, I'll catch you guys later. Thanks, Caleb. Thank you. Thank you.